Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The title for our uh, discussion this evening is The Greatest Gift. And uh, this is what we're going to be discussing. You know, the theme for this uh, program for this weekend is The Greatest Gift. Understanding what God has done for us as a people, as human beings, and the gift he has given us. That gift, uh, you know, if we were to ask this question, the answer would quickly be, you know, God gave us his son. And sometimes we say that so often, uh, it kind of loses its impact because we hear it so often and so uh, regularly. But uh, today we want to take a a closer look at understanding the greatest gift, because in understanding that, we gain a little bit of an insight into God's love, particularly into how God thinks, how God feels, and God's heart towards us as a people, towards our world, and particularly towards us individually as uh, individual human beings. In Revelation 4 and verse 11, uh, the Bible says, and if you have your Bible, you can turn there if you like. If you don't, that's fine. The verses will be on the screen. Uh, it's entirely up to you. But in Revelation 4 and verse 11, we are told, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. This scene of worship that comes to us from heaven, this glorious scene of worship to the Father, is given here with the reason, the reason being that God is the creator, God is the maker, God is the source and sustainer of all things. And as his beings, as his creatures recognize that, They recognize that every good thing comes from him. And so worship is given to him in recognition, in appreciation, and in thanksgiving to him being the creator of all things. You know, God did not have to create anything. You realize that? God did not have a need that required him to create anything. But he did. And uh, this is what uh, these creatures, these beings uh, are saying, that he is this great source of all. And so the things that God has created, the things uh, of nature, creation speaks of its author, gives us an insight as to this wonderful being that has created all things. The things of nature bring attention and direct our attention to God, if correctly understood and interpreted. And the sin, of course, has marred that, but uh, the scripture still tells us that uh, nature does bear a testimony or a witness. Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 12, we are told, He has made the earth by his power, he has established the world by his wisdom, and has stretched out the heavens by his discretion. That tells us that this created world is designed to impress us with God's greatness, with God's majesty. It's designed to direct our attention and our eyes to this maker and creator of all things. And too often, you know, nature is around us all the time. Uh, We kind of lose a sense of the impact it should have on us. Maybe uh, sometimes we hide from nature. We live in a concrete jungle, perhaps, in a city or where nature is a little bit far. We don't see much of it. And uh, it doesn't speak to us as it should. That's why when God created man... He did not place him in a city. He placed him in a garden to be surrounded with the works of his hands so that nature would tell him about God. So hopefully you want to look at that with a fresh uh, insight uh, this evening. And as we do so, the whole purpose is to inspire us with this awe 
and grandeur of God, that he is truly worthy of our worship, and particularly what he has done for us as a result of what happened to this world. Now, this little planet, planet Earth, our humble little home known as the Blue uh, Planet, it's a, it's a pretty big place. You know, I flew from, uh, from Australia over here, from Sydney to Dallas. That was a 15-hour flight. And the plane's going pretty fast for 15 hours. Now, so it's a pretty big world we live in. And uh, most of that distance was, was water, of course, or flying uh, over the Pacific. And then I had to catch another flight or two to get to exactly where I needed to go. Uh, but our world, big as it is, is actually the small little place. And it looks pretty small looking at, a, at an image like that. From this far up, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty hard to pick where your house is, right? <laughs> you know, we live in a big world, but it is really uh, small in the big scale of things. Uh, we want to look at the, a little bit of perspective just to give us a little bit of a, you know, to put things in the right context uh, as far as this world is concerned. When we look at a comparison of uh, our planet with other planets that are in our solar system, Earth doesn't do too bad compared to Venus and Mars, Mercury and Pluto as far as size is concerned. This is what we understand uh, the sizes of the planets uh, to be. But uh, when we go uh, to look at some of the other planets, like uh, Jupiter and, and Saturn, uh, we find that uh, all of a sudden Earth is like a little marble, right? You can see it right there at the bottom left uh, corner. A little marble compared to Jupiter. Imagine we lived on Jupiter. Imagine how long the flights would be, right? <laughs> Uh, you know, as big as our world is, it's actually small in the in the big scheme of things uh, when we look at it in perspective. And uh, it's uh, it's good to get, gain a little bit of a perspective every now and then because uh, we tend to think so much of ourselves and our world, and uh, we don't consider that we live in a vast universe, and the whole universe tells of God's greatness and majesty and power. It is God's word, God's power that holds all these planets and systems in place. Now, if we go on a little bit more, uh, here is our sun uh, that just set a little while ago to uh, indicate the commencement of the Sabbath. And when we look at the size of our sun, all of a sudden our earth, our home is even smaller yet again, right? And uh, this perspective, you know, really gives us a little bit of a slight comprehension as to the greatness of the maker of all these things. That's really the idea. You know, even our sun, as great as our sun is, again, when we look at it in perspective, it also fades when we compare it with other suns, because our sun is not the only star that there is in, this, in the universe, in the, uh, you know, God's vast universe. There are other suns or other stars, and some of them are much bigger, like Arcturus and Pollux. They actually uh, are giants compared to the size of our sun. At this scale here, Earth is invisible. <laughs> our planet Earth, our home, with all its issues, all its troubles, all its woes, all the different things that are going on, it is insignificant. We can't even see it. You know, if you have trouble in your, uh, in your life, in your experience. And sometimes the problems can be so overwhelming, that's all we can see in our world. It's, it's nice sometimes to kind of zoom out and look at the big picture, to look at things in perspective. And remember that 
The God who said, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, is the maker of this universe, who upholds all these things. Hopefully your problem will be seen in its perspective as well. As big as it is to you, you need to remember how big God is. And we see uh, a picture of that in uh, creation. It speaks of its maker. In Job chapter 38 and verse 32, we are told, Canst thou guide Arcturus with his sons? The journey of the star Arcturus with the accompanying stars around it is absolutely phenomenal. It is only held in place by God's power. This is the God we serve, brothers and sisters. The beings in heaven recognize this when they say, you have created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. That's why they worship God. They recognize that God is a great supreme being. This is our God. Even these uh, giants, here's Arcturus right there, kind of uh, the, at the left there on the bottom. Uh, it fades in comparison to some of the red giants. These are some of the red giants, the stars, and tears and Betelgeuse. Uh, these are super giants in the universe. These are the ones that we can see. These are the ones that we can detect. These are the ones that we can get some insight as to their size. How big is Earth here? It's kind of hard to really quantify when you put, put it uh, in perspective. Uh, and tears is, uh, is pretty massive there. You know, someone has estimated that this universe, you look up at the sky at night, uh, on a clear night where you don't have a big city lights to obstruct the view, you know, if you're out in the desert somewhere, and you can see the, star, uh, the sky full of stars. And uh, there are a lot of stars in the sky, and some people have tried to count them. And uh, we can only see the stars that we can see when we're looking at them, but there are a lot more. Uh, you know, the, the universe is vast. But this is the estimation. It's been estimated that there are enough stars for every person on Earth to own 11 trillion of them. Why don't you stop and think about that for a minute? Because, you know, some of these figures are so massive, they are overwhelming. If, uh, if you think about it, you can have your own private personal collection of 11 trillion stars, and so can every other person on the planet, 11 trillion each. And that's only the stars that we know about. We don't know about the stars that we don't know about. <laughs> we live in a vast, magnificent universe made and maintained by this great God that is worshipped by these beings in heaven. This is why in uh, the Bible, it tells us in Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5, he telleth the number of the stars. He calleth them all by their names. Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. That's what the psalmist says. Recognizing that God knows every single one of these stars. He knows them by name all 11 trillion of them, for each individual human being on earth, and the endless ones uh, besides. We live in a pretty big universe, and uh, I like to remember that from time to time, because, you know, you cannot but help feel a little bit small with some of these scales of the stars and with, with some of these uh, figures and numbers of suns and stars that fill that universe. Isn't that right? We just feel all of a sudden, wow, you know, we feel very important in our world and, and uh, 
on our planet and uh, it's a big, big universe, brothers and sisters. Uh, this here is a little device. Anyone have any idea what this is a picture of? This is the Hubble telescope. That's right. The Hubble telescope is our most powerful telescope up there in orbit. Uh, and uh, it takes a lot of images, a lot of, a lot of pictures. Uh, one time in uh, 1996, the researchers decided to train the Hubble telescope on a particular section of the sky that was apparently unimportant and empty. A little corner. And uh, they made this experiment where they would train the telescope at this uh, location for 10 full days. And uh, the size of that is about the size of a grain of sand held out at arm's length, as far as that patch of sky that they were looking at. So for 10 days, they would open the receivers and the sensors on the telescope and see what would be picked up. It was a bit of a you know, risky experiment because uh, viewing time on that telescope is extremely in high demand and very expensive. Why would you look at nothing for 10 days? But they did. And uh, to the shocking surprise of everyone, what came back was what is known as the Hubble Deep Field image. An image of the light from over 3,000 galaxies could be seen in that one tiny portion of seemingly insignificant size, where we thought there was nothing there. And so that light traveled, and over the course of the 10 days, it was picked up, and this is the image that was developed afterwards. Every single spot and smear and dot in this image, brothers and sisters, is not just a star, but an entire galaxy. It's a collection of millions of stars in each galaxy. That's only in one tiny little spot. Just let your mind dwell on that for a minute and imagine the universe that we live in. But then think about the God who made it and the God who maintains it. In uh, 2003, they did it again. This time they opened up the telescope with better technology with better sensors at another location. And for 11 days, they wanted to see what would be there. And uh, this is called the ultra deep field. This time, the result was over 10,000 galaxies. That's like one snapshot in just one location, which gives us the idea that this universe that we're in is not as empty as we imagine or think. It is packed. And in this packed universe with these thousands upon thousands of galaxies, there is absolutely no question or doubt that there are worlds and planets that are also inhabited, that fill God's creation. God did not create an empty universe. And in one of these galaxies is the one we inhabit, which we'll look at a little bit as well. But the interesting thing is we pointed mankind's most powerful telescope at apparently nothing. And this is the result we see, that we occupy a very small place in this universe. Actually, at this scale, it seems pretty insignificant, right? All of a sudden, it's like we're just one out of so many, this seemingly insignificant galaxy, and in this galaxy, our star is one of millions of stars 
And around our star, we are living on this earth. The scripture tells us in Psalm 19 verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And again in Psalm 8 and verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Are you getting a little bit of a sense of what the psalmist is talking about? God's glory is declared in the heavens. The heavens give us an insight into the greatness of this God who made all these things. This is a picture of the Andromeda galaxy. The Andromeda galaxy is a spiral galaxy and it happens to be the closest spiral galaxy. The spiral galaxy is one that's similar to ours. It's the closest spiral galaxy to us. It's, it's a neighbor to us. It's not too far. It's only two and a half million light years away. That means if we traveled at the speed of light, it would take us two and a half million years to arrive at this spiral galaxy. This is a neighbor of ours. Doesn't that just boggle your mind? There is a vast, vast universe we live in. That's absolutely incredible. Absolutely amazing. And uh, this Andromeda galaxy is home to about a trillion stars. You know, sometimes when saying these figures, after a while, they kind of don't register. If I tell you one trillion or a hundred trillion, it's almost like, yes, yeah, the same difference. Because at one point, our mind just cannot compute the vastness of these numbers. They just become a figure and just like, that's a lot. That's very many. That's, that's how we interpret our mind, because it's just absolutely mind-boggling, staggering. So very many would suit for most of us, I guess. Uh, the, the figure doesn't change much. It's fact. There is a lot of stuff in there. And God upholds all of that. Uh, roughly, estimates say that there are approximately, as far as we know, 100 billion galaxies in the universe. Like this one. And in them are trillions of stars and suns. The, the appropriate uh, word that we sometimes use to respond to something like that is, is quite simply, wow, <laughs> right? That, that's, that's how we, that's how we can say, wow, that's, wow. This is the universe we live in, brothers and sisters. This is the God that we worship. And uh, some of them are absolutely beautiful. This is the tadpole galaxy, named as such for, for obvious reasons, uh, because of its appearance. And all these other, you know, background little smidges and, and smudges and little uh, colors are galaxies far in the background as well. And uh, this is uh, the spiral galaxy. It's pretty similar to our one. This is our galaxy right here, the Milky Way. Now, this is not a picture of it. This is just an artist's rendition of it. We haven't left it to be able to take a picture of it. We're in it. So this is uh, what we understand our galaxy would look like from a distance. And in this galaxy, with all these swirling arms, our sun occupies that little spot pointed there by the arrow. Uh, you can't really see it at this scale. And around this sun is our little home world, where we live, where we are right now, today. And uh, it's uh, the Orion arm on which the sun is located. And uh, it's pretty close, not too far, to the galactic center. There are approximately 500,000 million stars in our galaxy, the Milky Way. Wow, will do. 
<laughs> That's a lot. Plenty of stars. It's just one galaxy. And uh, no wonder, brothers and sisters, that the Bible tells us that this universe speaks of God's greatness. An amazing thing is, the Bible also tells us that God made this universe, this vast, incredible universe. We just looked at a little, you know, uh, little insight, just a small, quick picture of some of the greatness of this universe. But the Bible tells us that this was made and given to God's Son. In John 3 and verse 35, it tells us, The Father loveth his Son, and hath given all things into his hands. God gave all things into his Son's hand. And we'll see exactly what that is talking about. In Colossians 1, verse 16, it says, For by him, that's Christ, were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. This universe was made by God through his son. And it was made for his son. That's just a little bit of an insight of God's love towards his son. He gave him, he made him and gave him a whole universe that uh, we cannot even comprehend the size of. We have no idea about how packed with stars and worlds and, and the mysteries and wonders that are contained in this universe. All we can do at best is try and make some pictures out of the signals that we receive to get a little bit of an insight. We have no clue what this universe is really like, what some of these systems are like. And it was all made, it was all given to the Son of God. And uh, the Son of God, with his Father, made and created all things. And we have this interesting verse in Zechariah, because there is a plan that was made by the Father and the Son. Zechariah 6.13 talks about it. Speaking of Christ, it says, Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. This council of peace brothers and sisters, speaks of the plan that was put in place by the Father and the Son. Should this little world, or any world for that matter, fall into sin? It's called the plan of salvation. And uh, it was formulated between the Father and Son from eternity. Because it was the Father who made all things by His Son and for his son and everything that God made is precious to God. You know, when you look at the vast universe and the galaxies and suns and systems and worlds that fill it, earth seems to be just a little insignificant little world among billions, right? And yet it means something for God. That's how much he loves his creatures, his creation. That's how precious it is to him. And this is important for us to remember, to understand. Because many times we lose sight of that. And many times when we are buffeted by the enemy and go through trial and severe uh, you know, problems and issues, we forget the bigger picture. And this is what we want to remember. And so this is our little world. And interestingly enough, as, as the hymn says... I cannot tell why he whom angels worship should set his love upon the souls of men. Our world 
is pretty small and seemingly insignificant in God's vast universe. Easily not missed. Isn't that right? You wouldn't really miss. There are so many stars and galaxies. And yet God loved us so much that he was willing to take a very big risk in order to save you and me. The psalmist says in Psalm 8 and verse 3 and 4, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? Can you see what the psalmist means now? When you look at the vast universe, we really think, why did God bother with little, with this little world, with man? What is man? How does God estimate man? Because honestly, if it was you or me, and we had a problem, when we had a collection of so many stars and systems and galaxies, and we had a problem in little one, what would we do? Just get rid of it. No problem. I have plenty more. We, we, we do it all the time, you know, when we have items. If it just doesn't work anymore, just throw it in, in the garbage, right? I have another one. And we live in a world and a society where you just replace things. It doesn't matter if it's broken up, don't worry about fixing it. It costs too much to fix it, right? Just get a new one. God did not do that with us. And so the psalmist here is impressed. He says, what is man? What, how does God regard man? That when we consider the heavens and, and the stars, we really realize we're so small, and yet God paid very special attention to mankind. In Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 4, we gain a little bit of an insight as to what it was like with creation. It says, Who has ascended up into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name, if thou canst tell? Here we're told that the work of creation is attributed to how many beings? To two beings. And they have a relationship between them. Their relationship is one of father and son. It was the father at the beginning who, along with his son, sat down and decided to create this vast universe with all the mysteries that we can only have a picture of. We don't know anything about. In this universe is our world where man was created, the father and the son. That tells us that this relationship between the father and the son was a real one, one that existed even before creation. See, a lot of people uh, misunderstand this relationship, and in so doing, they misunderstand how God has revealed his love for us. Many people feel or think that Christ only became God's son when he came to this world. Here we're told that the father had a son, a real son. And through this real son, long before anything was made, he created all these things. And his relationship to his son is just as real as the creation that he has made. It's not a metaphor or a symbol or a type. It's not a prophecy. It's a real relationship of a real father with a real son. And that is the key to really understanding the greatest gift that God decided to give to us. It's when we misunderstand this relationship, we really cannot fully appreciate what God gave to this world. And this is very apparent and clear in many places. This is just one example of that. So when it was time to create this world, we know that it was through Christ, the Son, 
the only begotten Son of God. He came and he created this world and he formed man out of the dust of the ground. And he gave him every good thing and every good gift. And God says at the end of creation, everything was very good. You have this perfect world in this perfect universe and everything was just fantastic. Until one day, Eve decided to wander and to eat from the tree and to give her husband to eat with her. And this love that God had revealed to this world in giving them everything. And just like he gave his son his whole universe on a small scale, he made this world and he gave everything in the world for man to have dominion of. It was a small scale picture of what God had done for his son. And when the time came, when he gave Adam all these things, it was just to reveal to them how much he loves them. But then when the time came, when Eve was eating from the tree and giving to Adam, how must, have, must it have been like in heaven as the father and the son and angels were watching as this was just taking place? You know, things were about to change drastically and permanently in many ways for this world. Think of how the father would have felt. Here is Adam and Eve. God had bestowed everything on them. He, he withheld nothing from them. And they go and they join the ranks of the enemy. With that first bite, the history of the universe was going to be rewritten. Because that history would actually affect the father and the son in a way that was never even imagined before. The death of the Son of God was confirmed, if there was any hope to save mankind. And this is what Christ came and told Adam and Eve shortly after. They fell into the deception of Satan. In Genesis 3.15, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This promise of salvation, that man would not be abandoned. That God had such a regard for man that he did not say, I have plenty of other galaxies and worlds. Okay, you can die. We might miss you a little bit, but we've got plenty more. This is not how God felt. God's attitude towards man is that he was willing to give his most precious possession, his very own son. And in that promise is the promise of the giving of the son who would come and be of the seed of the woman to take, to take on Satan in order to deliver man who's living on this little world in God's vast universe. That's quite incredible to consider, brothers and sisters. Because, I don't know if you realize it or not, but the verse we read earlier in Colossians where it says, you know, all things were made by him and for him. The rest, the rest of the verse, I didn't have it on the screen, but it says, and by him all things consist. If you're familiar with the passage. Christ is the one through whom everything was made, and he's the one through whom everything is maintained. He upholds all things by the word of his power, we are told. So when God gave us his son, God was actually giving us that which was upholding the whole universe. And the risk that the son took was actually a risk for the whole universe. Do you realize that? Perhaps we don't think about that often enough or realize what it costs for God to give us his greatest 
gift. This is how much God loved man. And so from the gates of Eden, the promise was repeated that one day the Savior will come. And in John 3.16, we're told, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting love. This is the measure of God's love. This is the measure of the gift that he gave us. He gave us the son to whom he gave the whole universe. That's in essence what God was giving us, the whole universe in giving us his son. Honestly, I don't think our minds, excuse me, can fully grasp what that means. At best, we can only get a little bit of an insight or a little bit of a perspective. But this principle here, the God that we serve is a God of love. And the principle we see here is that love gives, and love gives its best. That's what John 3.16 tells us. That son that God had at the very beginning, where Christ was begotten as the son of God, before anything was created or made, he was begotten of the Father, and he was there with the Father, and with the Father he created all things. That son is the one that he gave to us. That puts a very different perspective on things. And if we misunderstand that relationship, we cannot truly understand and truly appreciate the measure of God's love. And so God gave us an example to help us understand it a little bit better, a human example. One story above all others that reflects and shows the sacrifice of the father giving up his only begotten son. That's the story of Abraham. God told Abraham a request that is very puzzling, extremely puzzling. Genesis 22, verse 2, And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. You ever wondered about that story? What would you have done if you were Abraham? Don't answer. I just want you to think. What would you have done? You know, uh, as a parent, I have two, two young girls. At this time, Abraham only had Isaac from, from Sarah. Of course, he had Ishmael. That's the other story. Uh, but Abraham loved Isaac so much. He was the son of his old age. He was the son of promise. He's the son that he waited so long for. And now God, after all this, comes and tells him, take your son Isaac. And then God says something very interesting. He says, whom thou lovest. You know, did God really need to say that? It's like, Abraham, take Isaac, your son. You know, the one you really love? That one. Take your son. And offer him up as a sacrifice. What was God doing? God was revealing to Abraham a little bit of an insight of the greatest gift where another father would give his only begotten and well-beloved son to be sacrificed. That's what that story reveals to us. And on that mountain, father and son, Abraham and Isaac, were going through this experience and trying experience and anguish where Abraham would lift up the knife and was ready to sacrifice his own son, Isaac. He had to trust in God's promise. And at that crucial moment, God sends an angel to stop Abraham's hand. He was going through with it, right? Incredible. I'm not sure what I would have done, to be quite honest. And I have two girls, right? God was demonstrating an incredible insight. Abraham gained through this experience so much more than anything that God could have told him. 
He says, Abraham, let me show you what it's like. Let me show you what I am planning to do. I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to show you. Here's how we're going to do it. Take Isaac, your son, and go offer him up on a mountain. And Abraham did not know what was coming. He did not know there was going to be an angel to stop his hand. He truly believed his son would die. He actually had to trust that God would have to resurrect him from the dead after he killed him. And at that crucial moment, God sends his angel and he stops Abraham's hand. And he points to the ram there caught in the thicket. A symbol of what would happen when God gives up his own son. With one major difference. You know what the difference is? There would be no angel to come and stop the process at the last minute. It would go all the way through. And on that day, Jesus refers to it when he says in John 8, 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Where did he see it? Up there on that mountain with his son and the ram in the thicket. That God would give his only begotten and well-beloved son for this little world. For man that occupies a very small part of his vast, almost infinite universe. Abraham saw that and he was glad. The question is, do we see it, brothers and sisters? You know, God might not have asked each and every one of us to do that, thankfully. But we have that story recorded and we have these things so that it can impress our senses, our dull senses. Our senses which have been dulled by sin. To get a little bit of an insight into how much God truly loves us. Because as we gain that insight, it is designed to revive something in us. We're talking about revival this weekend, right? To, to bring to life something that is dead or dormant. That's what a revival is. The only means to do that is God's love. You realize that? It's not through understanding some better doctrines, you know, correctly or interpreting the Bible verses in this way. It is when we gain a fresh appreciation and insight into God's love. It's designed to awaken love in us towards God. The Bible tells us we love him because he first loved us. Jeremiah 31.3, the Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. How does God draw us? with his loving kindness, with how much he loves us. That's why we have all around us in nature and in the Bible, you know, reminders and evidences that point us to God's love. The greatest one of them all is, of course, what happened on the cross. And this is a verse I was just referring to in 1 John 4, 19. We love him because he first loved us. Our love towards God is directly related and influenced by our perception of how much he loves us. If our perception is dull, then our response is duller. It usually doesn't match. At best, it can you know, be just uh, uh, compared to it. But if our perception is enlarged and enlightened, this is what we're hoping this evening, to gain this fresh insight, come apart from the world, come apart from the busyness of what keeps us you know, occupied through the week, and to just sit back and just think about our place in God's vast universe and what God has done for us. And to remember that despite your problems, despite your issues, despite your difficulties and trials that you might be going through today, there is a much bigger picture. And it's good to look at that bigger picture every now and then because it actually all of a sudden puts our trials and problems in perspective. You know, God is so big and mighty 
in power and wisdom. Your little trouble and trial is nothing to him. Amen. You know, someone says, you know, uh, and it's a very good, uh, good thing to remember. The, don't, don't tell me about how big your problem is. Tell your problem how big your God is. We serve a mighty God, brothers and sisters, and he loves us so much. And he manifested his love towards this world. We're told in 1 John 4, 9. And this was manifested the love of God toward us because the God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. This is the measure. This is the yardstick. This is how we can quantify God's love towards us. He gave his only begotten son. That's why it's Satan's studied purpose to obscure the fact that God has an only begotten son. So there are all kinds of ideas like this. Oh, no, he became a son when he came as a man. He's only the son because of sin. He was just a make-believe son. It was just a metaphor. Anything to dilute this measure of God's love. On the mountain, Abraham and Isaac, that was a struggle there. If Abraham would give up his son, right? It was a real struggle of a real father over a real son. There was nothing make-believe about it. That's just a small-scale reflection of the great original, where the Father, God the Father, had a struggle with giving up his very real son. But he loved us so much that he was willing to do that. We really need to remember that. And in the garden, when Jesus was going through these last hours, his experience is recorded for us in Matthew 26, 39. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Here is Jesus praying in anguish of spirit and soul, asking his father to excuse him from going through. It was a little bit too much. Isn't that right? But he submits to the father's will. Not once does he do this. Another time he does it. In 20, Matthew 26, 20, 42, he went away again the second time and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. What do you think the father would have felt like hearing his son praying to him like that? How, how you know, how many, I think most of us are parents. How many parents are here today with us? If you have children, okay, we have a good few, most of us, looks like most of us have children. How would you respond when your child is suffering and asks you for help or deliverance? We know how we would respond. We would be quick to help them, right? We do whatever we can to ease their, their, their suffering. Here is God, the father himself. His son is going through a trial nobody's ever experienced. He doesn't want to go through how I, I really cannot comprehend how it must have felt for the father to hear his son pray that. And not twice, it's not once or twice. He actually prayed that three times. Matthew 26, 44. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time saying the same words. And the father had to hold back because it was necessary in order to save us. That's how much God loved us, brothers and sisters. It's something that we cannot really comprehend. We can only wonder about. We can only say, wow, really. There are no words or, you know, ways to really express that in the way that it deserves. Philippians 2.8 tells us, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The death that Christ died, the death of the cross, is 
the greatest gift and the greatest manifestation of love that this universe has ever seen. You realize that? We are the number one privileged race and the recipients of that gift. That really should give us a little bit of an insight into how God feels towards us collectively, but more specifically individually. And on the cross, in Matthew 27, 46, we're told now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land <laughs> unto the ninth hour. You ever wondered why there was darkness around the cross? Something was happening there, brothers and sisters. Something that uh, not a lot of people perhaps uh, realize when it comes to this relationship, this real relationship between the Father and the Son. In Psalm 18, verse 5 and 6, Jesus speaking through the psalmist, this prophetic psalm about this experience. He says, the sorrows of hell compassed me about. That means the sorrows of the grave or death. The snares of death prevented me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple and my cry came before him even into his ears. What's Jesus talking about here? He's talking about what was happening on the cross when he was crying. What did he cry on the cross? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Who was he addressing? His father. His father and his God. That's who God is. That's who God the Father is. He wasn't addressing anyone else. He was addressing his father. He says, he felt totally and completely forsaken by God. Totally alone. He was bearing the sins of the world. He was facing death. And it felt too much for him. That was what was happening. And in this vast universe on this little world is this amazing scene being played out. Do you think the father turned the deaf ear? What does it say here? He heard my voice out of his temple and my cry came before him even into his ears. The father heard, he knew very well, and he heard the cry of his son. That's why I was asking, you know, think about it. How do you think the father would have felt hearing the cry of his son dying now, literally dying? It goes on to say, in verse 7, Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken because he was wroth. You know what talks about the earth shaking and trembling in that psalm? We find what happened in the gospel is it tells us in Matthew 27, 51, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. There was an earthquake that happened. This was prophesied. This is one of the ways that God actually responded or reacted to the cries of anguish of his son. Not only that, but it goes on to say in the rest of the psalm, verse 9 and 10, Psalm 18, 9 and 10. He bowed the heavens also and came down, and darkness was under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and did fly. Yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His pavilion round about him were dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. You know what that's talking about? It says that the father heard the cry of his son and he responded. He came down from heaven and the earth shook and trembled. And the father had to hide his presence in a thick cloud of darkness that enveloped the cross and the world at that time, that location. He had to veil and hide his presence. Never think that God the Father was sitting in heaven while his son died on earth, just maybe watching, observing, feeling the anguish of it. He actually heard this, the cry of his son and he came down. That's what this verse is telling us. You realize that? That's why there was darkness. And in that darkness, 
God's presence was hidden. It was even hidden from his very own son. His son felt forsaken, but the father was right there. He came down. Of all the places in the universe, it happened on our world, where we live. You know, I, I tend to think of it, it's like the father came to, to be as close as possible to his dying son. But he had to hold back because he loved us. I cannot even imagine what that would have been like. That's a real father who loved his son. And he gave that son for you and me, brothers and sisters. Matthew 27, 46, it says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's how Jesus felt. And yet the father was right there. Wouldn't you do that as a parent? Of course. Where do you think we get that type of feeling from? From the father of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. We just sang about that, right? In Ephesians. He's the father of all. And he was willing, brothers and sisters, to go through that because of you. That's how much God loves us. That's how much God loves you tonight. Don't forget that. And if you had lost sight of that, or maybe it was a little bit hazy or fuzzy, I'm here to remind you of that. The greatness of the God we serve. On this little world, this invisible world, when we look at the big scale, was enacted this greatest scene, the greatest gift, which makes us the most privileged of all worlds and all races. That's incredible. Think about it. The Son of God has our human nature now. You realize that? That makes our race the most privileged and distinguished race in God's universe. Straight away. Not because of anything we've done, because it just so happened that the Son of God, of all the natures that exist, He took our nature. Wow, that's another wow right there. That's how much He loves us. That's how much He is determined to save us. That's how much He is not willing that any should perish. He went through all of that so that we could be guaranteed and be assured of how much He loves us and be assured that He wants salvation for us. So if you were wondering about whether God loves you or not, whether you're a grave sinner or not so sure about how you stand with God, I want to remind you, this is how it is from God's perspective. What are you going to do with it? You can believe it or doubt it. But we have every reason to believe it. Romans 2.4, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. You know that repentance is part of revival? Because we talk about revival and Reformation. What's Reformation mean? There's a change. That's what repentance is all about, to change. You know, I don't need to ask for a show of hands if, uh, if we messed up or, or blundered this week somewhere along our Christian walk. Because there is a devil out there who is determined, whose sole number one job is to make sure you stumble and you uh, fall. And you have these struggles. And so that when that happens, he then piles it on top of your head and tells you how miserable of a Christian you are, and you might as well just give up. You know what I'm talking about? This is why it tells us here, don't forget something. God's goodness is what leads you to repentance, to change. You can lay it at God's feet, at the foot of the cross. And God can revive you. God not only forgives you, but God restores you. 
this is something that's important to keep in mind. Some of the most powerful verses in the New Testament, in my, in my opinion, Romans 5 and verse 6, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Never forget that. Christ did not come and die for righteous people. He came and died to die for sinners. While we were yet sinners, while you were still in your mess, Christ died for us. That's how much he loves us. He didn't say, look, if you're good, then you qualify to receive of my love. And we came and died for sinners. Remember this promise. The next time, the next time the devil tries to discourage you with your sins and how grave of a sinner you are. Remember Christ and came and died for sinners. And while we were yet sinners, this happened for the ungodly, for those who are without strength, as it says here. So if this is how you're feeling, you're having a struggle in your experience, you feel like you're without sin, uh, strength, you feel a little bit like you're not where you're supposed to be in your Christian walk, well, you've come to the right place tonight. Christ has been given specifically for those who are in this category. That's all of us. So don't give up. Don't despair. John 1.12, as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. That's what God says. I sent my son into your world. What are you going to do with him? Will you receive him? This is really the question that will determine your salvation or your damnation. You realize that? What have you done with the son? If you received him, you're set. If you haven't received him, nothing else matters. It doesn't matter how much church you attend. It doesn't matter how, how, much, how much doctrine you know. It doesn't matter how much Bible studies you've given. If you have failed to receive the son, you have failed in obtaining the greatest gift. That is the greatest gift. And that gift, when we truly receive the Son and comprehend and realize what that means, that is designed to revive us from the death of sin that we suffer from, to awaken us. It didn't happen in any other world. It happened on our world. It happened for you and me. Have you received the Son? That's the question, brothers and sisters. And if you have never received the Son, will you receive Him today? And if you have received the son and messed up along the way, that's not the end of the story. You can receive the son and be restored. God's goodness leads to repentance. So I want to make that appeal to you. Because God made a promise we cannot forget. Hebrews eleven sixteen. But now they desire a better country that is unheavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he hath prepared for them a city. What's the name of that city? The new Jerusalem, right? God prepared it for his people. This is a gift as well. This is not the greatest gift. This is one of the uh, you know, bonuses that you, get, that you get with the greatest gift. You get this to live in this city that God prepared. You know, man's dream is to build a city to travel space. They call the city a massive spaceship where people would live and go and explore and, and colonize other planets and so on. And they kind of portray that in, in the, through the films and through things that are revealed. You know what I'm talking about? They're trying to copycat God's ideas. God already has a city that will travel in space, that will be occupied by people, will travel from heaven and come and land on this world. you realize that? That's called a spaceship in the modern uh, vernacular. Isn't that right? The name of the spaceship is New Jerusalem. There you go. God has prepared, and that is beyond our comprehension. 
Jesus told his disciples in Luke 12, 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is not the greatest gift, but it's through Christ that we can have access to this gift, to receive the kingdom. When we receive Christ, brothers and sisters, we receive everything that Christ has, everything that Christ owns, everything that is rightfully his. He has the universe. That's why as many as received them, to them gave you power to become sons of God. That's why the Bible talks about us being co-heirs with Christ. You realize that? When you have the Son, you have everything that the Son has. Joint heirs with Christ. That means his universe becomes what? Our universe. You realize that? God gives us the kingdom. He says it's yours. He loved his Son. He gave his Son a whole universe. He gave him everything. Then he loved us so much, he gave us his Son. And with him, he gave us everything. That's the greatest gift. Unbelievable. You want, you, you want me to be truly honest? If I was God, I don't think I would have done it. <laughs> Do you know, I'm thinking with human perspective. You know what I'm talking about? Humanly thinking, humanly speaking. If we look at the whole thing, I don't think I would have done it. I think, no, I love my son too much. It's a little world. I can make a hundred million more. But uh, thankfully, God doesn't think like us. God says, God is not a man, right? He doesn't think like his thoughts, his ways are beyond us. He is God. And he has impressed us and impressed the whole universe with truly how much he loves his creation. He just doesn't give up easy. And this uh, world will be restored. And in Daniel 7, we have this amazing promise, verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion, the greatness of the kingdom and the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. That's what God has in store for us. That means that universe will be ours to explore. Man is struggling now to reach a, a planet or another in our own uh, solar system. We can't even send people to some of those ones. We send robots, right? And uh, we looked at some of the distances. Our closest spiral, spiral galaxy is two and a half million light years away. You can't hope to reach that. Even if you put all the lifespans of people together, you wouldn't reach that. But with the sun, you can. There is a way. God's universe can become ours to explore, to enjoy, and to see the wonders of creation that he has placed in this vast, vast universe. All the treasures will be open to the study of God's redeemed. Only if you have the sun. You know, it's one thing looking at a picture of that. Can you imagine saying, uh, Richard, let's go there. And we can. The best we can do now is look at a picture. Through the sun, you can get to go there. That's a promise. He says, fear not, little flock. It is for your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And at that time, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, that's the Father, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Everything will be restored. And the Son, as a loving Son, will be subject to his Father. Everything will be back as it was before. That's what the plan of salvation is designed to accomplish. And all these wonders that we see are the universe. And the magnificence of them all will be for our enjoyment. Wouldn't you like that? Wouldn't you enjoy that? I know I would. Brothers and sisters, this is not a far-fetched uh, dream. This is a reality if we have the Son. That's His promise. 
This is what he desires for us. Every little speck and spot here, all these galaxies, you can spend an eternity exploring them. And seeing in each one a revelation of the greatness of the God who made it. And how he made that because he loves his son. He made it through his son and for his son. And now because you have the son, you have a rightful access and a rightful sense of belonging. Because what is the son's is also yours and mine. This is a, a picture of the Orion Nebula. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Uh, you can travel through there. Not just yet, but very soon. Coming soon, right? Coming soon. I'll close with this verse. In Revelation 21 and verse 7, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. This is God's promise, brothers and sisters. Don't set your affection on the things of this world. Don't set your sights on the things of this world, whether it be job, whether it be money, whether it be house, whether it be this or that or the other. Because these things, you know, bombard us each and every day and we kind of start putting that higher on our priority list, right? God says, listen, you want, you want all things? Here is how it is. It's through the sun. Only that way can you overcome. He that, can, he that overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. This is God's purpose. This is God's plan for you and me. So I pray that you have gained maybe a fresh perspective of the greatness of God and the majesty of God and his incredible love towards us directly and personally and be changed thereby. And that you make it your wish, you make it your decision, make it your desire. And to act on that desire, say, Lord, that's what I want. I want to be revived. I want to have the son. I want what you want for me. That's God's will for us to have this. You realize that? This is not like, well, if you want to ask me and we'll see how we go. God wants us to have this. It is his will. The question is, are we willing? Will we make the choice? It will take a commitment. You must receive the son fully. That's how we can overcome. I want to challenge you, brothers and sisters, to make that choice afresh tonight. If you've done it before, praise God. You can make a recommitment. If you've never done it, I invite you to make Christ your own. Time is running out. You know, Karen was talking about things that are happening in the world and all the issues that are shaping up. This world's only getting worse and worse. But there is a way out. You can get an exit visa. The name is Jesus Christ. I pray you will make Christ yours. That you receive the Son tonight. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.